Good morning. Good morning. This uh, Mother's Day. You know, we all have moms, right? And uh, all of our moms, you know, have made sacrifices for us along the way. And uh, it's great to have a day to celebrate and to just pause and think about all that our moms have done. We've been uh, thinking together uh, from the scriptures <clears throat> about uh, how the gospel, when it's of first importance, and how the gospel, when it's um, you know our first consideration uh, in life, and how uh, we talked a little bit about how when the gospel actually begins to control uh, our way of thinking and so forth, that it literally has the power to change our lives for the good. And our kind of key passage is way back in 1 Corinthians 15. We started here in Easter. And um, Paul writes to this church, and he said, I just want to remind you, brothers, of the gospel. It's easy to forget, right? Get caught up in this life and the foreground of our, our lives and forget about the background. Um, I just want to remind you uh, about the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you're being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached, uh, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance, single most important thing. And remember, Paul got this message not from other people, but straight from the Lord. Remember, the Lord met him on the road to Damascus and, and so forth. He says, I delivered to you as, as of first importance what I received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised again on the third day. First importance, Paul says. And so today, on Mother's Day, I thought, you know, Mother's Day, it's all about relationships. And uh, I want to suggest to you that God uses a number of different metaphors to describe his relationship with us, right? And um, if you take those various metaphors and try to put them in kind of an ascending order, that we sort of get a pattern of the way that God deals with us and a, a way to figure out where we're really at with God at this point in time. And also, it gives us kind of an outline or a pattern on how to raise our kids. And uh, just uh, if you'll follow along, I think you'll see what I'm trying to say. So, for example, we might say that at the very bottom uh, of this metaphor list, uh, there's a stage in our relationship with God where God says to us, listen, I'm the potter, you're the clay. I'm the potter, you're the clay. You remember this way back in Isaiah? Isaiah chapter 64 and verse 8. Uh, but now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you're our potter. We are all the work of your hands. Okay? I'm the potter, God says, and we're the clay. Now, it's not very flattering to think about ourselves as a lump of clay. Right? I mean, mostly when we think about a lump of clay, it's going in circles. Now, some of you might be going in circles, but when you're going in circles, you're basically going nowhere, right? Until the potter comes and starts to poke and squeeze and shape and form, and until the potter puts his um, uh, genius into being a potter, uh, there's not much to a, a lump of clay, and uh, God says some interesting things, right? Um, in Jeremiah, uh, it, at the very beginning of uh, Jeremiah, um, Jeremiah chapter 1 and verse 5, 
before Jeremiah is even born, here's what God says. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you, and I appointed you to be a prophet to the nations, way before you were even born. And then a little bit further in Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 18, um, God uses this image or this metaphor of a potter and clay to talk about his whole relationship with Israel. He said Israel was like a lump of clay to me, you know, in uh, uh, chapter 18, verse 1, the word came to Jeremiah from the Lord, arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I'll let you hear my words. And so I went down to the potter's house, and uh, there he was working at his wheel, and the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand, and he reworked it into another vessel, and it seemed good to the potter to do. Then the word of the Lord came to me, Jeremiah, O house of Israel, Can I not do with you as the potter has done, declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. And so I'm the potter, God says, and um, you're the clay. When I was uh, born a couple years ago, um, I was born with a defective aortic heart valve. Never knew it. All I knew is that whenever I tried to play sports, I was just always winded. I couldn't breathe as good as everybody else, couldn't run as long as everybody else and so forth. And uh, when I was 65, I discovered that this was a problem because that problem caused an aortic aneurysm and I had to have open heart surgery and fix everything. So, you know, it occurred to me that way back when I was born, God decided I was not going to be the new Tom Brady, right? I was just going to be Dave DeVries. And that that was part of his putting me together, you know, uh, way back. Psalm 139, which, you know, we looked at a little bit. Uh, I I think you're probably familiar with this. But, um, you know, David, the psalmist says, you know, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. Your eyes saw my unformed substance And in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was not one of them. And then he goes on to say, you know, a ton of thought went into making you who you are, like the grains of sand on the seashore. I'm the potter, God says, and you and I uh, are the clay. And if you want to get into this a little deeper, you can go to Romans chapter 9, where Paul talks about, you know, it's the potter's uh, freedom to make Uh, different kinds of vessels out of the clay, and you can get into that whole subject. But our children start off like this, right? God sees our unformed substance, he says. Uh, We can't wait to see our children. Little Ryan, I'm sure, you know, for nine months, uh, Grandpa was just waiting, 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 and and then finally we get to see what they look like. But by the time our kids are born, there's already a relationship between God and them and between us and them. Okay. Okay. I'm the potter, you're the clay. If we move up a little bit, uh, there's another metaphor that God uses to describe our relationship with him. And I think by this, we move to a new level. And God says, listen, I'm the shepherd, you're the sheep. Now, sheep is a step up from clay, but it's not a big one, (laughs) right? Sheep are pretty low on the food chain, right? They're not, it's not a big one. But God says, you know, I'm the shepherd, you're the sheep. The 23rd Psalm, everybody's well aware of the 23rd Psalm. Um, And, you know, we love the 23rd Psalm. Uh, Sheep at least have instinct. Sheep at least know to follow the leader. 
There's an instinct about sheep. It's, it's up a step from being a lump of clay. And uh, they know enough to, to follow the leader. And I think the reason that people really love the 23rd Psalm is because in the 23rd Psalm, uh, the Lord is your shepherd and we want for nothing. There's a stage in relationships where moms, you know, make sure that kids want for nothing, right? They have an instinct, they eat and, you know, they cry when they want something and all of that. And, and moms in particular, as John said, bring compassion and comfort and they just know that. And we love the 23rd Psalm because that's what the Lord does for us. You know, you start to think about how it is that we want for nothing when the Lord uh, moves us to this kind of relationship. Uh, it's because he does everything. You know, Philippians, uh, Paul talks about how Jesus was equal with God but emptied himself and humbled himself and became a man and came all the way down to our level. He's God, comes all the way down to our level. Kind of like you ever see parents with a newborn and you know, they could be an executive in New York someplace in the corner office and the whole thing, but they're, oh, goo goo, ga ga, they come all the way down to the kid's level, right, to be able to communicate. And that's what God did in emptying himself and coming to us in the person uh, of Jesus. And then you read that 23rd Psalm, you know, uh, God does it all. Uh, he takes us from a lump of clay to a living person. He breathes life into us. He gives first. He provides. He sacrifices. It's all of God, and it's all of grace. But there's another, uh, well, John 10. Uh, In John's gospel, uh, Jesus calls himself, right, the good shepherd. John 10.10 talks about the fact that we do have an enemy. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. We do have an enemy. I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. I'm here, you know, uh, in this relationship so that you could have life and have it abundantly. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life uh, for the sheep. But there's another uh, metaphor that God uses, and uh, we've already talked about this a little bit, but uh, God comes to us, and John mentioned it this morning, I'm your father and you're my daughter, you're my son. I'm your father. And uh, I would suggest to you that this is the next level of relationship. And it's here that I think the gospel comes in because not everybody's a part of the family of God. It's through the gospel that we're able to know God as our, as we saw a week or two ago, uh, our Abba, our dad. Uh, the intimacy of a family relationship with God that God, you know, starts with clay and uh, moves to sheep and uh, eventually becomes our father and invites us into the very uh, family of God. Uh, at this level, we no longer live by instinct, right? We've matured a little bit, and we realize that uh, we have choices we have to make uh, at this level. Um, uh, Ephesians uh, chapter 2, I think uh, there's many places we could go, but Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 13 says, This, now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Once you were clay, then you were a sheep. Now I brought you into the family, right? And uh, if you skip down to verse 18, uh, for uh, for through him we both have access, uh, both, Paul is talking here about the Jewish people and the Gentile people, and he's saying we both have access uh, to God, Uh, Through him, we have access in one spirit to the Father. 
So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and the members of, listen, here's the word, the household of God, the family of God. Uh, Through the gospel, we've been adopted into the very family of God. And God becomes our father, our dad. Verse 22, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by uh, his spirit. In chapter uh, 4 and verse 17, uh, this is kind of the consequence of that. Now this I uh, say and testify to you by the Lord that you must no longer live like you used to live in the futility of your mind. You know, um, you were deadened in your understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance uh, due to the hardness of heart and so on and so forth. All of a sudden now in the family of God, we got choices to make. We got to grow up a little bit and our father uh, is going to uh, teach us and he's going to mature us and, and so forth. Uh, we realize that our minds, our hearts and our wills have to start making choices. But then there's another metaphor that God uses to describe our relationship with him. And uh, I think it's this metaphor that moves us past just the receiving end. Up until this point in time, we've, everything's about you know, receiving, receiving from God. But there comes a point where we just have to kind of ask ourselves, uh, how am I supposed to respond to this father who loves me and who's invited me into his family and who's taught me, you know, and so forth? How do I respond? And I think at this level, we might say that God says, um, I'm the Lord and you're the servant. I'm the master and you're the servant. And, um, you know, we begin, I, I call this stage kind of the character developing stage. Um, and again, uh, has a great deal to do with making uh, right choices. If we go back to um, uh, Matthew, in Matthew chapter uh, 25 and verse 14, you'll be familiar with this. Uh, Jesus is talking and he's teaching in parables and he says, the kingdom of heaven is like this. Uh, it's like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. Okay, the kingdom of heaven is like this. Growing up with God is like this. Uh, To the one he gave five talents, to another he gave, you know, two talents, and to one he gave one talent, all each according to their abilities and so forth. Verse 19 says, Now after a long time, the master of the servants came and they to settle accounts with them. And this is the passage where You know, Jesus says that at the end of our life, we'll be sort of evaluated. And what we all want to hear is, well done, good and faithful, what? Servants, right? There's a stage in our relationship with God or a level in our relationship with God where we understand he's the master, he's the Lord of the universe, okay? And we're his servants and we're here on earth with a purpose. We're his workmanship, Paul wrote to the Ephesian church, you know? Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. He's the Lord of the universe. We're here at this particular point in time by his will. And uh, we're on assignment. There's a job to be done. Uh, there's a God to represent and, and so on. And so I, I'd suggest to you that this is kind of a character uh, building uh, stage. Um, and in uh, Corinthians, Paul in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and at the end of this chapter, he says, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, 
whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. God not only created us from that lump of clay and brought us through these stages, but he also redeemed us at a huge expense to himself through Christ's blood in order that we might be a part of his family. And uh, we're not our own. We don't belong to ourselves. We belong to this God who loves us and made us, uh, but also has a plan for our lives. And um, this stage, uh, again, I think Jesus uh, talks about this in different ways, but uh, in uh, Matthew uh, 16, again, uh, here's what Jesus says. And I I just uh, substituted the word control. Uh, It says, for whoever would save his life is going to lose it. Whoever would control their own life is going to lose it, Jesus said, right? Uh, But um, whoever loses his life or yields control of his life to the Lord, to the master, uh, uh, who loses his life for my sake, he'll find it. He'll find the life that I created him for. And so um, I think this stage is about a transition from uh, being sort of selfish and kind of self-centered and just thinking about ourselves and all that God's doing for us and so forth into a kind of serving mentality, kind of a worldview, a biblical worldview that understands the reason that I'm here, the purpose for me to be here in life at this point in time is to serve the God of the universe, you know, who has handcrafted me to fit into a particular part of the puzzle of his kingdom that exists today, and uh, I have the privilege of being a part of that. And so, um, again, uh, it's Jesus who said, hey, you know what? It's way more blessed to give than to receive. And so there's a stage in our development with God where uh, at the beginning we receive everything, and it's great, and we're, it's wonderful, but there comes a point where we understand that this God is the Lord of the universe, and he has a plan for us, and, and we get to live that out. <clears throat> and by the way, uh, I, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but, you know, there's no such thing as a teenager in the Bible. Have you noticed that? In the Bible, there are just children and adults, right? And so what is a teenager anyway? A teenager is not a child, and we won't let them be an adult. And then we wonder, what's wrong with these kids? They can't figure out who they are, you know? And it's like, wait a minute, you know, it doesn't make sense. I think the Jewish people have the right idea. You know, they allow uh, children to get to a certain age, and then they have uh, some requirements that they require of them, and then they throw a huge party, and they announce that this child has now become an adult. And guess what? He's going to start talking like an adult. He's going to start thinking like an adult. He's going to start reasoning like an adult. And guess what? We're even going to start treating them like an adult. And all of a sudden, this person, you know, is an adult and uh, has moved past what we call uh, the teenage years. And I I just think it's confusing for so many people. But this is that stage where don't, isn't right in there is where we're learning. Wow, you know, I'm here at the behest of the master who created me and designed me for a purpose and so forth. And I need to figure out what that is and and give myself to it in a way that uh, I'll hear at the end of my life, well done, good and faithful servant, right? Um, I'm the Lord, you're my servant, God says. But 
He's not done. There's more to our relationship with God and more to our uh, relationship with our kids. Um, you might remember the story of the prodigal son, right? You, you remember there's two boys, right? And the one takes off and uh, makes a mess. And the other one is a good servant. He's been faithful to his father. He's been loyal. He's hardworking. He does everything the father wants him to do. He's a great servant, the older son in the story of the prodigal son. But he just can't connect with the heart of his father. And so there's another metaphor. There's another level in our relationship uh, with the Lord that I want to suggest to you. And it's found in um, John... John's Gospel, John chapter 15, if you're familiar, John 15, 15, uh, says this. No longer do I call you servants, but I call you friends. Now, this is God speaking. No longer do I call you servants, but I call you friends, okay, Because the servant does not know what his master's doing. But I've called you friends. For all that I have heard from the Father, I've made known to you. The difference between being a servant and being a friend is knowing. Now, God knows us perfectly. But as we get to know God, you know, this John chapter 15 Uh, It begins by uh, the Lord saying this, right? I'm the vine, you're the branches. I'm the vine, you're the branches. We are going to share life, the same life. No longer do I just call you servants. That's a part of this whole process. But you have become my friends. And so I ask you, you know, when you think about your relationship with the Lord, do you think of yourself more as a servant or a friend? of the Lord, of our God. I would suggest that this is another level. If we just back up a couple of verses in uh, verse 13 of this same chapter, greater love has nobody than this, that somebody lays down his life for his friends. You're my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master's doing, but I've called you friends for all that I have heard from my father I've made known to you. The difference between being a servant and a friend is how well we know each other, right? Now, I think the idea of a divine human friendship originated with God. If God didn't say first, you are my friends, it would be beyond arrogance for somebody to say, I'm the friend of God, right? But since God says first, you are my friends, to deny God the opportunity for us to be friends with him has to be a sin. To say, you know, I'm comfortable being a servant, like the older brother in the story of the prodigal son. I'm going to be your servant, and I'm going to serve you well and all of the rest of it, but I can't be your friend because I don't agree with what you're doing with my younger brother. We can't share the same life. I'm the vine, you're the branches. We share the same life as friends. And so I think it would be a sin for us to deny God the opportunity to make us his friends. 
And isn't it great in um, you know, our lives when our kids grow up and they're there for us? It's wonderful. But isn't it even better when we can go beyond that and become friends with our kids? And, and to rise even above a level of roles of the family roles of parent and child and so forth, and get to that level where we are actually friends with one another. Now, you know, friendships have degrees, right? We all have people that we would call our friends, but we always walk on eggs around them because the friendship is so fragile that, you know, if we just say or do the wrong thing, it's going to be over. But the Bible says there's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And uh, that's the Lord Jesus who invites us to be his friend. And then we all have other friendships where we can totally be ourselves because why? Uh, we're fully known and fully loved at the same time. No secrets, no walking on eggs, no fears. Fully known and fully loved at the same time. That's how God loves us. He fully knows us, he knows thoughts that are on our minds before we do but he fully loves us at the same time and invites us into this kind of life. And you know, um, <clears throat> friendships are not about equality, right? It's, it's not like we're equal in our friendships. Um, if you just think through some of your friendships, I'm sure that there are people who you would consider you know, above you or below you financially, above you, below you in terms of... Uh, their uh, emotional health, uh, I, I don't know, status, uh, job, whatever. Um, it's not about equality. It's being invited into a relationship where there is a likeness at the heart level that enables us to be friends and share the same life uh, together. Now, Abraham, you know, is called a friend of God. Um, in James uh, chapter 2, James is arguing for the fact that if we have real belief, it always shows up in what we do, right? Works. And uh, in uh, James chapter 2 and uh, verse 21, uh, James uh, talks about it like this. He says, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works and the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God and was counted, it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. Abraham's the first one to be called the friend of God. He was called the friend of God. And there's a couple of places in the Old Testament uh, where he's called the friend of God and so forth. Uh, you know, with God, we were made in his likeness, made in his image. We do, through the gospel, have the capability of sharing the life of God uh, by his spirit and so forth, um, but we'll never be equal to him. But we can be friends uh, in spite of the fact that, we'll, just like parents, parents will always be parents, right? And kids will always be kids. Uh, but as friends, we can rise to that level of understanding each other, knowing each other, loving each other, and uh, so on. Abraham was the first to be called uh, a friend of God. And I think Paul explains in Romans in Romans chapter 4, uh, the Apostle Paul uh, explains a little bit of how to become the friend of God, talking about uh, Abraham. First couple of verses, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has uh, something to boast about, but not before God. 
For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. As to the one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Um, and, you know, it sounds like, oh, well, what are you doing? It sounds like the Bible's contradicting itself. James is saying, you know, it's works. Paul is saying, no, it's faith and trust and so forth. And uh, they're like two sides of the same coin, right? Uh, so many times when God reveals himself to us, it, it seems like uh, the truth is in the tension between seemingly opposite ideas. And it's just because our brains aren't as big as God's, right? It's, it's harder for us to understand, but the truth often is found in the tension between seemingly opposite ideas, which in the mind of God are, are not opposite at all. Anyway, uh, all right, friends. Uh, but there's another metaphor, and uh, I know you're saying, time's up, pal. Uh, <laughs> There's one more metaphor that uh, is reserved for the future, and I'll just tip you off. You can read it for yourself, and you probably know all about it, but at some point in the future, you and I are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we will live to God in this beautiful, loving harmony. Jesus, our groom, we, the church, the bride, and for eternity be together in this... uh, absolutely perfect relationship with God uh, for, forever and ever. What a great thing. Uh, Revelation chapter 19, if you want to uh, follow up on that. And uh, way back in Isaiah 29 and verse 16, uh, talking about that time that's yet future, the Bible says that God will rejoice over us. Now that's an unbelievable thought, isn't it? We're always thinking, oh, poor God, he's stuck with us, you know. no. There's going to come a place where we're going to be like Christ and God is going to rejoice over us. Isaiah 29, 16. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, when we uh, walk our way through these various uh, descriptions that you've chosen to describe the relationship that you desire with us, we recognize your sovereignty. We recognize, Father, that you've made it in such a way that you do invite us to respond uh, to your goodness, to your love, to your grace, to your wisdom. And so as we sort of try to evaluate our relationship with you, I pray that you would help us to think about, uh, you know, do we really think of ourselves as your friends, as being, uh, you know, in life together, sharing the same life? And again, as the gospel has more and more prominence in our life or more and more control, we do recognize that the essence of our life really does. It's a shared life that comes from you. And so, uh, Lord, uh, when we think about our own relationships with our kids on this Mother's Day and and so on, and we realize here's kind of a, a, a loose pattern, if you will, of the various ways in which uh, we want to make progress with our own children. And we ask for your help in that and that you would teach us by our relationship with you how it is that we might uh, relate to our children in a way that would uh, cause them to uh, see you in our relationship with them. And so we thank you for this privilege to represent you and ask your blessing in it for Jesus' sake. Amen.